Well, grab your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts 4, page 968 of your pew Bibles. Acts chapter 4. We are wanting to kind of start a new series. We, we sort of did a soft open last week looking at the uh, Valley of Dry Bones. Um, and uh, every year I, I plan out my sermons, and every year that goes out the window as the year comes. Um, I, I, I can prove it to you. You remember COVID? We did like a four-week series on what to do with COVID. I did not plan that in December of 2019, right? That one sort of hit you out of nowhere. But about a few weeks ago, uh, for some reason or not, felt really compelled to, uh, to do a, a brief series on the resurrection. If the resurrection is central to our faith, how many of us can honestly explain why it is so essential to our faith? If Christ is in that tomb, would we still be here? And if not, why not? So I want to spend a few weeks showing why the resurrection changes everything. So Acts chapter 4, we want to look at uh, that Jesus was raised for our healing. 968, if you will stand with me out of reference, uh, reverence of, for God's word. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, we'll go down to verse 12. Luke writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed in the number of the men who came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem and Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, and John the Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. When he had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do, the, did you do this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are ex- being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask the same thing every week, that you would open our hearts um, and our minds and our eyes and our ear, our mouth, our hands and our feet, that we would go uh, take your word and the Christ it proclaims and the gospel that it gives us, and we would be transformed by it for your good and your kingdom. Lord, we desperately need the resurrection. We desperately need the healing from the resurrection. All of us here are broken. We are sinners and we are victims of sin. And what we need is an empty tomb. Would you give us this hope? Would you give us this cleansing? And would you bring it to our community in ways we've never seen before? May I decrease that you can increase. Name your son, we pray. Amen. Be seated. You may say it's timely. I would probably say it's providential, but I woke up this morning like I do every morning and read the headlines of Kentucky Today. I don't mean to sound like a Kentucky Baptist, but you should sign up for Kentucky Today. It's run by the Kentucky Baptist Convention. Uh, You you get an email each morning, the headlines of the day. It's local news, Baptist news, national news, and they love to pick on the University of Louisville. And 
UK stuff. But anyway, so, so you, get, you get your daily news. Here, here's the story uh, that I found this morning, and it has to do with what Americans believe about the resurrection. The opening line is what really uh, grabbed me. It says, quote, Most Americans believe Jesus rose from the dead on that first Easter Sunday. Here's the next line. They're just not sure it matters much. If you want the breakdown, it's two-thirds of U.S. adults, 66%, say the biblical accounts of physical resurrection or Jesus are completely accurate. They believe this event actually occurred according to the 2022 State of Theology. It's a yearly thing that comes out that will scare you to death if you read it. Fewer than a quarter, 23% disagree, and 11% say they are not sure. But that line, it just, it sticks out to you, doesn't it? Most Americans, two-thirds, believe that the resurrection actually happened. Most, however, don't know why that even matters. What I want to do in, in, in this week and in the weeks to come, again, soft introduction last week with the Valley of Dry Bones, is to explore why the resurrection matters. Chances are you can go up to the average Christian who actually goes to church and doesn't just pretend to be one online. You can actually go up to them and they can tell you why the cross matters. Something to do with forgiveness and salvation, all that sort of stuff. Let's change subject. But when it comes to the resurrection, how many of us can ever really articulate it's truth. I remember a crisis I had when I finished three degrees in, in seminary and someone asked me why the resurrection happened. Like, like why is it so essential? And, and my answer was, was more of a bobblehead doll trying to give an answer. A lot of us and, and whatnot. Why does the resurrection matter? And what we see here in this text is, first of all, Jesus was raised for our healing. Notice verses 1 through 4 with the annoyance. I, I love this. I love it when people get annoyed in the Bible because then I don't feel alone. At this point in the narrative, what has happened is that Peter preached in Acts chapter 2. A lot of people got saved. And then on their way to the temple in Acts chapter 3, a lame beggar is, is, is asking for, for resources. And Peter says, look, I ain't got nothing to you. I'm a preacher. And so, but this is what I can do. In the name of Jesus, be healed. And the man is no longer lame, which means he's no longer a beggar, right? And, and, and the word gets out that this has happened. And so religious people do what religious people always do, whether they're secular religious or traditional re religious, is they start whining, complaining, and try to cancel them. And so, so he, here they are. They're essentially on a, a type of trial for healing this lame man. Now, we need to know that what we get in Acts 3, where this event first happens, takes two chapters to tell the full story. In Acts 3, where this first happens, all the way into Peter's sermon here in chapter 4, there's been a consistent message on Peter's lips. Jesus has been raised from the dead. His number one message above everything else is that the tomb is empty. Christ is alive. He rules and reigns the universe. Go back with me to chapter 3, verse 22. It may be helpful to see this up close. Chapter 3, verse 22. He's given this, this message after people come out and, and want to know what, what, what in the Sam of the Hills is going on. So you go down to verse 22 uh, of chapter 3. Moses says, Peter preaching, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You shall listen to him, whatever he tells you. He's quoting Deuteronomy 18, referencing Deuteronomy 18, where Moses says, A true and greater Moses is coming. We as Christians believe Jesus is that true and greater Moses. Verse 23, And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. 
And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these, these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God has made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning to every one of you from your wickedness. You, you see his point there, right? God's been telling you this is going to happen. Moses told you, Samuel told you, all the cool cats told you, a true and greater Moses is coming. A true and greater prophet is coming. Listen to him. God raised him from the dead to save you from your wickedness. It's very clear in the text. The message that they are preaching. Now compare that to chapter 4, verse 2, where he, he says uh, that they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming this, Jesus the resurrection from the dead. You see that central to his preaching, central to the early Christian message, is that Christ is indeed alive. Now, I love this in verse 2 that we find out that the religious elites are greatly annoyed. Religious people, again, whether secular religious people or traditional religious people, are easily annoyed. The Greek word, therefore, annoyed, means, means to be deeply pained or greatly pained. They, they, they can't take it anymore. This word is used only one other time in the New Testament. And it's, you may remember the story where uh, the, the demon-possessed man's following Paul around, right? And Paul says, enough is enough. Begone, Satan, right? And he's like, jeez, now... Now, now I don't have to put up with that anymore, right? It is to be greatly annoyed, like, like some of us during business meetings. You know the feeling, right? Or, or, or spending a holiday weekend with the in-laws. You know exactly what he's talking about here. You, you, break, you reach that breaking point. And, and, and they're so tired of hearing Peter and the apostles talk about the resurrection, they got to get straight answers from him. And so they, they ask him, uh, what in the world is, 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 is going on here? And, and so they, 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 they discover here that Peter has a power. But it isn't. What we need to see here is that the power is not that the gospel is contagious because of its messengers. The gospel is contagious because of its message. That's what Luke is wanting us to see. Peter's just a redneck fisherman with a funny accent. He's a nobody. But what he proclaims Christ is risen from the dead that's earth-shattering. That's transformational stuff. So we move from the annoyance to the account. And, and, and here Peter, um, he is learning that uh, hate speech isn't free speech, so he's been canceled, so he's having to, to apologize to Twitter here. And so, so here uh, he, he gives his, his, his explanation, and they want to know the answer to that question. What is the source of your power? Now, if you know Acts... That word power should stick out to you. Every time we talk about missions and evangelism, one of the verses we read is Acts 1.8. I bet you can cite it. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Holy Spirit right, will be unleashed in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the undermost part. Same word here. And so it's not an accident then. In, in verse 7, we, we see that um, what power or what name did you do this? And it says the Holy Spirit filled him as to what to speak. And I love his answer. Peter ignores the question. He could run for office, couldn't he? Right? I mean, he does address it, yes. But, but he's like, oh, oh, that's why you're arresting me. I can answer. I can set this. I don't even need, need a lawyer. Here, I can answer this. No, no, no. He understands that by the invitation of, of, of a question, right, 
He has now an audience waiting for his answer. I love that. A preacher's going to preach, right? And this preacher's going to preach. And notice his message, starting in, in, in verse 8. Rulers of the people and elders, have we been examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man? By what means this man's been? In other words, you, you arrested me for being a good boy. Did you ever as a kid, uh, hopefully not as an adult, but did you ever as a kid do something bad hoping someone else would get in trouble? I know the answer to that. My, my brother was the world's worst at that, but he always got caught. Actually, I think he enjoyed getting caught so long as we got in trouble along the way, right? For, for example, when, when I was a little guy, I'm talking about three, four years old, a little guy, he found dad's spray paint and he went out to the garage and he, 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 he spray painted a double-headed stick figure monster. And blamed me and my sister. Now, I, I didn't know what spray paint was. Okay, so, so that didn't work. But he blamed his sister. And mom and dad are like, since when did your older sister enjoy drawing double-headed stick figure monsters? We have a thousand doodles in our keepsake box that you gave us of double-headed monsters shaped as stick figures. You did this. And to, and to prove it. He took the spray paint and wrote C-R-A-I-G, Craig, underneath it. He signed it. Hey, oh, I didn't do that. Spank her. That didn't work. He did the same thing. We got older. I think he was mad at me for something. Uh, not, not a big surprise. And we were in a bunk bed. He was on the top bunk. And conveniently, right where you would turn on, on mom and dad's panel walls, he wrote something nasty. You know, it's like Craig is a, I don't know, a, a duty head, whatever it was. And, and, and he goes, ma'am, uh, Kyle called me a duty head, whatever it was. And, and, and mom and dad looked at it. I mean, it's right there, right where he would turn over in his bed, right on the panel wall. I mean, it's just very conveniently located. He was the top big brother. I was the bottom uh, bunk brother, right? And so mom and dad did an entire investigation. This is what included. They gave me a piece of paper. They gave me a pen. They said, I want you to write exactly what is on that wall. But here's the thing. It was written in cursive on the wall. You got to write it in cursive. The problem is, I hadn't learned cursive yet. <laughs> Could barely spell. I misspelled one of the words. Right, right. He wasn't, he wasn't very good at that, that, that game, right? Um, I did get him in trouble one time carving his name into mom and dad's bedpost. I'll save that story for another time. But, but it, it did work. But here's Peter. He's saying, am I in trouble for doing something good? You, you, you seem upset that the dude can walk now. Like, I should be hired by hospitals, okay? I mean, come on. He's, but, but, but he realizes he, he's not there because of something that he's did. But the message he proclaims, verse 10, Let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing in front of you. That's a good sermon right there. You don't need illustrations. The illustration is standing right there. He is raised or he was healed because Christ was raised. Now, what we need to see here, here's the key. We've got to see a connection between the healing and the message. We get this in the Bible. Physical miracles are nearly always a picture of spiritual truths. And this is true here, and I can prove it to you in the text. That the hope that the beggar has in the resurrection of Christ is the hope the sinner has in the resurrection of Christ. Just as the beggar was healed, so is the sinner. 
I can prove it to you in the text. Look, then, look there in verse 9. Peter proclaims, this man stands before you healed. Chances are is what your translation says. You may have something different, uh, especially if it wants to be very literal. But, but, but chances are your Bible says, this man stands before you healed. Go down to verse 12. Verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which to be saved. What if I told you the word saved in verse 12? That's a spiritual issue, isn't it? It's the same word in verse 9 to describe the man's healing. Same word. So-so means saved. It just means saved. Now, when it comes to interpretation, we know what Peter means in that this man stands before you healed. He was lame. Now he can walk. He's healed. But Luke wants the reader to pick up on this because Peter's message is this man stands before you saved. And I'm here to tell you there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved except Jesus. The same Jesus that healed him is the same Jesus that heals us. That's his point. In fact, if you go to verse 10, we see this even more. In verse 10, he says, um, by him, that is Jesus, this man is standing before you well. That language describes uh, 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 being made whole. It means to be healthy, well, sound, restored. The man is healed. The man is made whole. It's not that he's he's a little lame. It's that he has new legs. He's made whole. He is healthy. He is sound. He is well. And so Peter says the secret to all of this is both the crucifixion, verse 10, whom you crucified, and the resurrection God raised from the dead. Jesus was raised for our healing. That's the basic message of of this leper. That's the basic message for you and me. Our hope for healing is that Christ is risen from the dead. His hope is your hope. Your hope is my hope. And my hope is the same hope this broken world desperately needs. How then does the resurrection of Jesus heal us? There are two things every person here and every person we ever meet in life we need to be healed from. Two things. The first is guilt. And what was, until recently, the uh, best-selling English book of all history, particularly uh, when it comes to uh, fiction, um, uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, he imagines his, his main character named Christian carrying upon his shoulders a great burden. Uh, If you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, it's an allegory. That is required reading. Have it done by Wednesday night. And and, um, um, he carries this burden on his back, and scholars have long debated what that burden represents. I think it's very clear. It's psychological guilt. He is trying to flee from the, from the city of destruction. He's, he's looking. He says over and over again, is there some way I can get this burden off my back? Is there someone who can take this burden uh, away from me? And this, 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 this feeling of not measuring up, this, this sense of continuing to fail, of being unworthy of love and grace, that is a burden that is laid upon all of us. And every time we fail, every time we sin, Every time we do what we know is wrong, this burden gets to be heavier and heavier. And denying sin, as our culture so often tries to do, will not liberate us from this. 
Why? For the same reason that ignoring the engine light on your car doesn't fix the engine. So to ignoring this burden upon your back, this burden upon your shoulders, this burden upon your soul will by no means liberate you. It will by no means give you freedom, nor will random acts of kindness liberate you. Think about it. Most people believe that they are destined for heaven simply because they are good people. Try that in front of a judge. Let's say you have a minor uh, crime. Let's say a parking ticket, okay, or speeding ticket or, 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 or whatever it is. You refuse to pay that ticket. And when asked, you say, oh, you don't understand. I am such a nice person. I am such a nice person. I, I, I don't have to pay for that. The judge in the system will look at you and say, that dog won't hunt, right? The very, very sophisticated judge he is. He's from the South, of course. That dog won't hunt. Why? Because helping old ladies across the street does not address the guilt of the parking tickets. That has to be addressed. And until that is addressed, until it is satisfied, the burden of the state and its weight upon you will remain. Good deeds will, will by no means satisfy our sin. Punishment must be rendered. Your shoulders are not broad enough to carry your guilt. And this is why when we allow guilt to overwhelm us, we, 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 we choose isolation, we choose loneliness, we choose despair and bitterness and jealousy. We, we, we compare ourselves to others in order to feel worse or to feel greater. We, we, we are just overwhelmed with this, but it doesn't work. When Christian encounters the cross, he sees Jesus there dying in his place and for his sins. The way Bunyan describes it, the burden just magically uh, uh, rolls off of him. And it goes down the hill of Calvary into a, a grave. And he says, and I never saw it again. My burden has been lifted. I've been washed in the blood. One of the great things we need to be healed from is guilt. And that is a gift no one in this world can give you but he who is risen from the dead. At the cross, Jesus meets and satisfies and appeases the wrath of God. But at the resurrection, he gives to us forgiveness. You're no longer defined by what you have done. No longer defined by your past and mistakes you made or the opinions of others. You're defined by he who rules and reigns, defeating and conquering death at the right hand throne of the Father. MacArthur tells us that there are at least 75 analogies of, of, of forgiveness in Scripture. Let me give you a few. Forgiveness unlocks the cell door and lets the prisoner free. It is to write in large letters across a debt, nothing owed. It is to pound the, the gavel in a courtroom, declare the person not guilty. It is to shoot an arrow so far that it can never be retrieved. It is to take out the garbage and dispose of it. It is to lose the anchor and to set the ship free to sail. It is to grant a full pardon to a condemned and sentenced criminal. It is to loosen a stranglehold on a wrestling opponent. It is to sandblast a wall of graffiti, leaving it brand new. It is to smash a clay pot into a thousand pieces so it can never be put together again. And having been forgiven, we discover, we are free to forgive. We're free to forgive because we have no burdens on our backs. We have no need to make demands of others. We, we are free. We are healed. But we haven't been made whole yet. 
If the first thing we need to be healed from in the gospel is guilt, the second is shame. When I was in Africa, the translators asked us not to use the word sin, not because they were pagans or heretics, but because they understood Zarma, the language, local language of the village. They didn't really have a word for sin. They, so most didn't understand the concept. What they had in that sort of culture was a concept of shame. It was then I realized we do too. We're just too ashamed to admit it. Shame. Typically, when we think about salvation, when we think about spiritual healing, the conversation ends at forgiveness. We say, all right, Jesus, I made a lot of mistakes. Can you free me from it? And through the cross and resurrection of Jesus, he, he does certainly that. But rarely do we address sin committed against us. Rarely do we address the stain that sin puts on our soul. Whether it is because we are guilty of sin or whether we are the victim of it. Sin has a real stain upon it. We understand this intuitively, don't we? That there are some things that have happened to us in life. Maybe we are the cause of it. Maybe we're the victims of it. That we just can't seem to shape. In fact, it, is, it runs so deep in our soul, we run the risk of, of alienating others because we feel dirty. Or we, we run the risk of cutting ourselves because we feel so burdened with the shame. Because we've taken it on as a sort of persona. This is who I am. This is who I've become. Because of this happened to me. I was abandoned. I was abused. I was this or that. And we become these things. Shame. How many of us carry around the wounds of the past? How many of us carry around the hurts of sin? The Bible understands this. In fact, the Bible uses a number of terms to address this. Defiled. Dirty. Unclean. Unholy. Filthy. Unrighteous. Unworthy. Shame. This is why you read in the Bible that there is clean and unclean, righteous and unrighteous, holy and unholy. You see, when Jesus healed the leper, he touched a man who was unclean. He was dirty. He was unrighteous. But Christ, in touching the man and healing him, he brings with him his righteousness. He brings with him his cleanness, and he gives it to the leper. It's what the gospel does. The gospel cleanses us. If, if forgiveness frees us, here we see how the gospel cleanses us. See, the point is to see that sin is a burden. It's also a stain. And it has a staining effect on our soul. That is why when we, when we relegate sin to a whoopsie-daisy, no big deal, we'll do better next time, we are undermining its depth, and so we cheapen grace. Sin is a stain and for that reason, we must be washed and cleansed. We need more than forgiveness. We need to be renewed. This is why Peter can describe this dirty, lame beggar who has no access inside the temple as whole. The resurrection has come upon him. Christ has died for him. And he isn't just forgiven of his sins. He is cleansed from them. Look, if salvation is merely fire insurance, then it isn't really good news. Because you're still carrying burdens your shoulders cannot carry. And you're still walking around in stains that you can never cover or be cleansed from. 
Salvation heals. Maybe you've been carrying loads of guilt and shame and want to be set free. I invite you this morning to come to the cross. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and you've walked the aisle and you said, give me Jesus and God forgive me of my sins. But, but there's still people you can't be around. There's still stories of your past that still bring tears to your eyes. There's still nights you can't sleep because you're reminded of the shame of what you have done or what's been done to you. There is good news for you. Christ was raised for your healing. Or maybe you're haunted by past events. Maybe it is old wounds. I beg of you this morning to come to the empty tomb. One of my favorite songs we sing, it's a modern hymn, but a hymn nonetheless. I think it's one of the most theologically rich songs that we can sing. Written by Keith and Kristen Getty in Christ Alone. I love the last two verses. There in the ground his body lay. Light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day. Up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory... Since curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. And if the religious elites were standing here as they were in Peter's day, you know what they would ask? What is this power? What's the answer you would give them? This Jesus whom you and I crucified, God is raised from the dead. And he still heals sinners today. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you.